Now on Netflix. Inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. Welcome, and thank you for tuning into this week's episode of Maryland's Most Notorious Murders, where the most gruesome, the most bizarre, the most high-profile, senseless homicide cases in Maryland are examined, they are discussed, and they are profiled. For this season, season five, the focus is on thick, sadistic, twisted, rapist, pedophile, or sex-related type murders. I mean, all these types of homicides that occurred in Maryland. And as I stated in the last episode, we have so many of these types of weird and senseless murders in the state of Maryland that this is like just part one. Part two will be featured like sometime later during this uh, podcast. So with that being said, let's get right to it. On this episode, the gruesome, violent, and horrific murder of 15-year-old Quatrina Keisha Johnson will be profiled. And as in each episode, an unsolved homicide that needs attention will also be profiled. On this episode, this, un- this episode's unsolved homicide is the shooting murder of 28-year-old Andre Hunt. Now, before I even get started, let me tell you, like, there's killing a person. You know, you have your different methods of murder that killers sometimes use. I mean, sometimes the person is shot. Sometimes they're stabbed. Sometimes, you know, a person can be poisoned. You know, um, you can be, you know, blunted to death or whatever. But I think a cruel cool way to take a person, you know, to finish a person off is to set them on fire. I mean, Jesus, that's like a whole other level of evilness. You got to be a special type of demon, depraved monster to set a person on fire. I mean, it's you got to be a cold-blooded, evil animal to pour gasoline on a person and light a match. What kind of blood is flowing through like your veins to do something like that? 15-year-old Katrina Keisha Johnson, she had led a rough life and for whatever reason, she ended up in foster care. Instead of a group home, she was placed in a foster home in Pikesville. While at this foster home, she became friends with another foster child there, another 13-year-old girl, and the two became like foster sisters, and they became real close. They confided in each other, sharing secrets and whatnot, like other girls sometimes do. Quatrina's foster sister even confided to her that she was having sex with a man who was way older than her 13 years. He was 24 years old to be exact. 
Never mind that this dude was 11 years older than her. She was in love and they were going to get together no matter what. This sensuous affair had started when she was just 12 years old. Couple problems with this whole big plan though with them getting together. You know, what he so her what he so called was doing <laughs> with her so called boyfriend is called statutory rape. No matter how consensual it was, twenty four year old Jason Terrence Richards, who was from the seventy four hundred block of Kathy Dale Road in Pikesville, was basically a pedophile, having sex with a twelve year old. One day. On July 11, 2004, when Quatrina's foster mother came home one day, she found Jason straight up in bed with her 13-year-old foster daughter. I can't even imagine the shock that went through her head. I mean, I mean, honestly, I would have zapped the fuck out, but her foster mother didn't. But what she did do was call the cops. Then she took the 13-year-old to the hospital to get her checked out. A warrant was issued for Jason's arrest, and he then went on the run. See, this is how stupid killers can be. Because Jason knew that the girl was having sex, with that she was only 13, even though he later said that she told him she was 21 and a stripper, he knew he was fucking a child, and he knew that what he was doing was illegal as fuck. I mean... Because he ain't want to go to jail for a bullshit statutory rape charge, which honestly, well, I can't say that's a bullshit statutory rape charge, but they really, the penalty for that is 20 years. They really don't give you that much time for, for but Jason decided that he had to get rid of her just for that charge. He decided he had to kill her. So Jason came up with a plan to get rid of her. I mean, let, let's pause this for a minute. Let's go back. Let's think about this. Think about what kind of evil mind it must it must take for you to have to kill the same child that you was just having sex with. I mean, dude ain't want to do no time for statutory rape, which I believe the max is like 20 years now, but you would rather take your chances and kill the girl. I mean, y'all see how the mentality is of B-Mores killers? But anyway... Jason crafted up a plan to convince his 13-year-old girlfriend that to get away from all of their issues and their problems and his pending cases and all of this that was troubling them, that they needed to run away to California. I mean, oh my God, I swear, y'all, the mind of a teenager. So anyway, just eight days after the 13-year-old was found by her foster mother in bed with this dude, he showed up to her bedroom window at four in the morning trying to lure her outside to go on this so-called trip or escape or rendezvous to California. Suddenly, the girl had second thoughts about making such a big move. According to articles in the Baltimore Sun, she was basically like, you know, I'll go, but she didn't want to go by herself. So she asked Quatrina if she would go with her because she didn't want to go alone. Maybe she already sensed danger, who knows? But the two girls, they shared a bedroom and they kind of knew each other's secrets and everything. So 
Katrina knew about their relationship. She knew that she was having sex with a grown man. Either way, Katrina agreed to go with her. She agreed to go with both of them, probably thinking that she was going to have a time of her life in California. So both, both foster sisters, they packed their bags, and later, their foster mother, she said she'd seen them headed out, running away yet again. It would be the last time that she would see Quartrina. What these kids did not know was that Jason wasn't going to no damn California. And he definitely didn't have plans of being with either one of them. But he did have plans, a different type of plan, for the girls. So worried about him that he was going to do time for statutory rape. Jason decided that he needed to get rid of both of the girls for good. So there would be no charges because there would be nobody to testify. So with the help of his friends, 18-year-old, I'm going to change this one's name. I'll call him Martin Shelf. I changed his name because of the little sentence, the little sentence that he got. But anyway, 20-year-old Eric Thomas, O.C.K. Watkins, and 18-year-old Ogden E. G. Wiz Coleman and his girlfriend, Jason, they all came up with a plan to lure the girls to get them out of the house. But after the girls hooked up with Jason and his friends, things did not go as planned. Using two cars, they all drove to Baltimore and ended up on the grounds of Benjamin Franklin Middle School in Baltimore City. And that's when things took a deadly turn and the group started attacking Quartrina. Now, Martin and Eric were supposed to kill Quartrina and Ogden and Jason. They were supposed to kill her foster sister. But when her foster sister saw Quartrina struggling with the, both all the men, she and Ogden, she and Ogden's girlfriend left and they got away. What happened next was horrific. Nothing short of freaking monstrous. Ogden tried killing Quartrina by choking her with a shoestring, while Martin and Eric struggled with Quartrina, and she wouldn't die as easily as they thought. Jason decided to help them out as he tossed a board over for them to use. Jason held her Quartrina's legs down, and Eric started beating her in the head with it until she wasn't moving anymore. After she stayed still and was dead, they loaded her body in the trunk of Eric's car, but turns out his car had a flat tire, so they took Quartrina's body out of Eric's car to the trunk of the second car. They drove to Gwynvale Park in Pikesville, and at the park, they tossed her body out of the trunk like trash and dumped her in a field. Then Ogden poured gasoline on her body, struck a match, and lit her body on fire. The next morning, around 5.30 a.m., Quatrina's body, which was still burning, was found in the field. Known as snappy to her family and friends because of her quick and bubbly personality, according to an article in the Baltimore Sun, Quatrina was a straight-A student at Woodlawn Middle School who was supposed to start school at Milford Mill High School. The teen had big dreams of going to Spelman University, 
where she was going to major in business and minor in music. Katrina's real mother told reporters that even though Katrina had been in foster care for about a year, they did manage to talk on the phone every day. Now, after Katrina was found and the police were called, an autopsy was performed on Katrina and the medical examiner determined that Katrina had died from head injuries and asphyxiation. Katrina's foster sister got away from all of this and wasn't hurt at all. The killers left plenty of evidence at the scene. And it didn't take long before all four were arrested and charged with Quatrina's murder. And it didn't take long before they all started snitching on each other either. What these co-defendants did agree on was that Jason was the orchestrator of the whole ordeal. They said he planned the whole murder and they just did what he told them to do. And they all agreed to testify against each other. Ogden was convicted first after all the others testified against him, saying that they had witnessed him choking Quatrina. In the end, all four were convicted of Quatrina's brutal killing. After a Baltimore County jury deliberated for about six hours, Ogden was found guilty of first-degree murder and one count of conspiracy to commit murder. Ogden's family said that he had been trying to get his GED and had planned to take classes at a culinary school in Pennsylvania with dreams of becoming a pastry chef one day. It had seemed like he was making all the right moves in his life, but somehow the peer pressure and Jason's influence ranked first in his life and somehow he just got caught up in some big boy shit. That judge wasn't trying to hear none of that shit and Ogden received a sentence of life without the possibility for parole for first-degree murder and another life sentence for conspiracy to be served consecutively. At Ogden's sentencing hearing, he did apologize for what happened, but he refused to acknowledge what he did or take ownership. And when he was asked if he wanted to make a statement, he said, you're probably looking at me like I'm guilty because the state says I'm guilty but I know in my heart that everyone would be gone if it wasn't for me. Martin, who accepted a plea deal because he testified against his friends, got a 50-year sentence with all but 40 years suspended, and somehow he was released after serving only about two years, even though he had testified to pouring gasoline on Quatrina. Because Eric also testified against his colleagues, he pled guilty to first-degree murder and accepted a sentence of life with all but 60 years suspended. But prison did not fare too well for him. On April 17, 2009, after serving after five years of his sentence, Eric got into a deadly fight with his 43-year-old cellmate who had been serving 25 years for assault, robbery, and gun charges. A corrections officer who had been conducting a routine check stopped the fight, but the damage was already done. Eric suffered severe head wounds, and at 3.15 a.m., emergency workers were called into the Western Correctional Institution in Cumberland, Maryland, for help. When they couldn't revive him, he was transported to Memorial Hospital, where he died on April the 18th, 2009. 
Jason, the ringleader of this whole murdering posse, received a sentence of life without the possibility of parole. And to make sure Jason never ever got out of prison, the judge added on another consecutive life sentence saying, somewhere down the road, some liberals down in Annapolis might water down the meaning of life without parole. Jeez. Now, the reason why I put this one in the category of, you know, sick and twisted pedophilia type rape murders, even though uh, Quatrina was not sexually assaulted reportedly, but it this case kind of did start from a pedophile base because if he had not been having sex with um, her foster sister, then none of this would have never happened. You know what I'm saying? Like if he hadn't have been accused of that, felt like that he wasn't um, gonna face those charges, then Quatrina would possibly still be alive. So I kind of threw this one in there and also because of the brutality of it. I mean, who don't remember this case? If you're not, you're not from Baltimore, if you don't remember case about the girl you know being in a foster home and you know her body being found burning in a field in Pikesville. um you know if people are the, the true people that are really into maryland true crime this was a case that stood out it was very it was very high profile it was notorious i mean uh burn like i said a burning body a 15 year old burning body in Pikesville. i mean come on now so yes, I had to include this case in that. Um, this case also put the spotlight on foster care in teens. I mean, just running away from everything. I mean, I've been there. I'm not even gonna lie. I mean, I wasn't in foster care, but sheesh, I was a runaway. I'm not even gonna lie. I mean, the things I used to do as a thir 13, even 13, 14, 15, just staying, running away, Staying in strangers' houses. Like, I can't even believe some of the stuff that I used to do, man. It's un unbelievable. It's it's a miracle that nothing ever happened. I mean, staying, even staying out on the street, <laughs> sleeping on benches. I, I mean, it's, it's a miracle that nothing ever happened to me um, when I was just living like that. It's just sometimes the mind of a teenager, you think that you're invincible. You think that you're safe at all hours of the night and come to find out that you're not. It research this case just actually brought back memories. I, I could not believe it. I could tell you some stories about Hilton Park. Oh my goodness. <laughs> I know my sisters. Mm, I mean, it, it was just it just brought back memories. I, I could have easily been one of these we could have easily been one of these um one of these teens. Um poor Katrina died a horrible death. I mean, who she she was only helping out a friend. I mean, only helping out a friend. Speaking of the friend, it's like, um, where the fuck was? Why didn't she tell the cops? It's, it's a lot of questions that I would have to ask in this case. Like, you know, why didn't she, um, you know, call the cops when she first saw them struggling? Let's just say that, you know. And why didn't she? Did she know how violent the dude Jason was? Why didn't she warn her or anything like that? I mean, there's just some questions that's kind of spinning around in my head about that. I know it would be in mind, like, you know, why didn't you call the police? You know, she could have been saved. You know, all this was an idiot, idiot crime. Like it was planned poorly. 
you, it's hard to believe this dude was 24. I mean, it's just, did y'all really think y'all was going to get away with this? I mean, it's just, this case, just talking about it was just, like I said, just going down memory lane of this, the wildlife of, of growing up in Baltimore City in the early 90s, you know, and just, or even the late 80s, waking up in strangers' houses and just being free and walking the streets of North Avenue. What in the world was I doing? But it's just, um, I don't know, this case would always be a notorious case in the state of Maryland just because of the brutality of it and like like i said the victim being 15 years old killed by four men Ugh. It, it was just one that took me down memory lane i'm not even gonna lie now moving right along into this episode's unsolved homicide before i do let me just mention that like in each season before this season there will always be an unsolved homicide that needs attention or needs special attention that will be discussed. It will be profiled. Now, believe it or not, every person that gets murdered in Baltimore or in basic or in Maryland in general, they don't always make the news. They don't always receive a whole bunch of special attention or media coverage. You know, it don't make Murder, Inc. I mean, most of these cases don't make Fox 45 or WBAL or, you know, the Baltimore Sun or nothing like that. It's because it's more like, you know, a victim gets killed. You might hear about it, like they might mention a name and that's it. You're pretty much sometimes don't hear nothing else about the victim. You know, you don't hear nothing about the case. You don't hear about if it was solved. It was just like the victim was here one minute, then it was gone the next their name becomes a name on a board um they have a file and if nothing does not happen if no evidence is not you know coming uh quick fast and in a hurry then that case i won't say it gets shoved to the side but baltimore is homicide detectives are kept busy you know and the victim's family it they're just expected to pick up where they left off just move on with their lives like nothing ever happened and basically just hope for the best. Basically, that's how it goes down in the state of Maryland. I mean, well, guess what? On this podcast, this one right here, we're going to give attention to not only just the notable high-profile homicide cases in Maryland, but we're also going to focus on the unsolved homicides that may or may not have received the attention or the coverage that they deserved you know, or unsolved homicides where it seemed like nothing was done because the victim or they lived whatever type of lifestyle or they did whatever in their personal time, you know, the, the family, they, you know what, you still deserve to know what happened. I mean, come on, that's still with somebody's son, somebody's daughter, that the family still deserve justice. So with that being said, this episode's unsolved homicide is the shooting murder of 28-year-old Andre Hunt. In the year of 2015, Baltimore City was a war zone. I mean, it was called Baby Iraq. Kind of still is, but even more so, even worse than what it is now. I mean, I know it because at the time I lived it. I lived in the city. I mean, bodies were dropping like flies. 
literally right in front of you. It's what got me to leave, leave the city. I mean, this was the year of the Freddie Gray riots and everything, including law enforcement, was like on a pause. It literally was just like everything just stopped. So many bodies just dropped. Like they just started blending into horrendous, just one big horrendous deadly year that really put Bodymore Murder Lane on the map. I mean, police was just like, fuck that. Y'all want to act like this? Guess what? We're going to let y'all police yourselves. We ain't going to do shit, basically. I mean, in 2015, that year, 344 people were victims of homicide in just Baltimore City alone. I ain't even talking about Baltimore County or nothing like that. I'm talking about in Baltimore City alone, where almost every single day, somebody got killed. Shit got so bad that the National Guard had to be called in, like, to basically restore order. You seeing people in army and military just walking around with submachines. I mean, but that ain't even that ain't even make much of a difference because just hours after they were sent in, on April 29th, 2015, 28-year-old Andre Hunt became one of those victims. Although Andre had recently been sentenced to serve three years in the federal prison system for heroin distribution, he had tried to clean up his life. I mean, before he was due to start serving his sentence, he wanted to get some things in order. Andre had volunteered. He had volunteered with the local NAACP chapter. He counseled and spoke to like kids that, you know, were in and out of trouble at the Boys and Girls Club about ways to avoid trouble and to handle confrontation with other kids. Andre still kept his job as a barber at Cutmaster's Barbershop on Liberty Heights Avenue, and he was well-liked in the neighborhood, well-known. At around 2 p.m. in broad daylight on April 29, 2015, Andre was lured out of the barbershop in the 3800 block of Liberty Heights Avenue in West Baltimore and shot once in the back of the head. 911 was called and Andre was rushed to an area hospital, but he died 10 days before he was due to report to prison. Baltimore City Police do have surveillance video of two men seen running away from the scene, but that's about it. And the video was only shown on TV like two or three times. So in other words, investigators don't have much information. So y'all already know what I'm, I'm about to say. Y'all already know how I'm, I'm about to kick it. Y'all know the cops can't do everything themselves. And so if you have any information at all about this unsolved homicide, no matter how trivial it may seem, no matter how mundane it may seem, no matter how small it may seem, please call Cold Case Homicide Detectives at 410-396-2100. You know, you can call them, like, at, you can also call Metro Crime Stoppers. It's another number. At 1-877-7-LOCKUP. You can send them a text message at 443-902-4824. You can also email them at homicide tips with an S at baltimorepolice.org. Once again, those numbers are 
Baltimore Cold Case Homicide Detectives at 410-396-2100. You can send a text message to 443-902-4824. You can email them at homicidetips with an S at baltimorepolice.org. You can remain anonymous, people. You don't have to put your name or none of that out there. I mean, you can actually make a difference in somebody's life. Thank you for tuning in this week. Please be sure to subscribe to this podcast for updates on future spine-tingling, hair-raising, eye-popping episodes. Also, for paid subscribers, be sure to check out the real, raw, unedited version of why I do what I do. Wow, I started the True Crime Podcast. A lot of people think that I just woke up one day, decided to start writing and talking about killers and whatnot. It's got blood and gore all on my mind. I mean, but that is hardly true. There is a full-blown method to all this crazy madness. And all of this was definitely just like no overnight fad or something. It was like no overnight gimmick. So, also... Be sure to check, pay a visit to the new website, www.MarylandsMostNotoriousMurders.com. And Marilyn is spelled M-D-S, um, MostNotoriousMurders.com to get immediate access to all of the prior episodes that have been released for season one through four, as well as links to all of the books that are related to this podcast entitled Marilyn's Most Notorious Murders. 1990 to 2008, Maryland's Unsolved Homicides, Volume 1, and the upcoming Maryland's Most Notorious Murders, 2009 to 2020. Also, check out the local, all the, my other local bestseller book, um, Junkie at Your Baltimore Story, and Until I Get Caught, The True Story of a Serial Rapist in Baltimore. Be sure to tune in next week where another high-profile, another bizarre homicide occurring in Maryland will be examined, it will be profiled, and it will be discussed all on Maryland's most notorious murders. This has been a Savage Life production. <laughs>